welcome to the first in a series of podcast lectures on Lacanian psychoanalysis. This podcast lecture is the one where I'm going to start to discuss, or at least attempt to discuss, some, but certainly not all, of the concepts that make up a much broader field of study called Lacanian psychoanalysis. I have actually struggled quite a bit as I've tried to prepare for these lectures. I have struggled a ton. And before sitting down in front of the microphone today, I kind of was thinking about why that might be. Why was this so hard for me to prepare? Out of all the other lectures I've done, these lectures are definitely the most difficult for me to put together. And as I reflected on that, what I came up with is this idea that uh, I've spent many years working to understand Lacan's ideas and the effects that his ideas have had on psychoanalytic praxis. Years and years and years trying to understand this stuff. When I first encountered Lacan, I was a graduate student. I was a doctoral student, actually. So I'd been in graduate school for a while at that point. I tried to read something from this book called The Acree. Uh, Acree is just the French word for writings, and the Acree is a collection of a bunch of things that Lacan had written. And I got that book, and I tried to read it, and I couldn't make sense of it. I, I, and I was good at reading difficult stuff at this point in my student life. I was pretty good at it anyways, or at least I think I was. But this, just I couldn't quite find anything. I couldn't find an in. I couldn't find something that did make sense to me. And then kind of from there, it kind of explore and find something else that made sense to me. I, I was just feeling totally baffled and massively lost as I was reading this stuff. My response to that when I encountered it was to not get frustrated and give up. It was to get frustrated and kind of like double down. Like, no, I am going to understand this. I'm going to, I'm not giving up uh, to stubbornly and doggedly keep going. And that meant I read lots of secondary sources. I read articles. I read books by uh, other people who were attempting to sort of, you know, provide like an introduction to Lacan or a starting point for Lacan. I found YouTube videos of people trying to explain Lacan. I found podcasts where people tried to explain Lacan. And I listened to the, all those podcasts. I watched all those videos. I read quite a few books and many, many, many articles. And and then I went back and sure enough, after doing all that work, I, I was able to understand more about Lacan and I've never really stopped. Here I am at this point in my life, lots and lots of years after this initial encounter that I just described to you. And I, I find that now Lacan certainly makes more sense to me than he did when I first encountered him, but there's still a lot of things in Lacan that I don't understand. It continues to challenge. It continues to give me something that I can engage with. And the more that I engage with it, the smarter I become. I feel like I become a better practitioner, a better clinician, a better psychoanalyst. I feel like I become able to understand much more complicated things. So that's one of the reasons that this is difficult, right? Is the level of investment that I have in it. For me, Lacan is something that has become part of my natural and normal way of thinking about things. I think in Lacanian language, I think in Lacanian concepts because I've spent so long with them. But what I'm trying to remember when I'm preparing these lectures is that for you, the person who's hearing them, chances are that Lacan is somebody who you don't know anything about, or maybe you know a little bit about, but you don't know a lot. For you, I suspect 
Lacan is new and novel, not natural and normal like he is for me. This is something I, I don't think I'm alone in this. Sometimes when somebody has spent a lot of time learning something, especially a complicated thing, they might encounter somebody who doesn't have their same level of knowledge and they struggle to talk to somebody who is still at that new and novel level. It's tough because you're, you're used to spending time at some of the higher levels and it can be tough to remember that people don't have the same access to knowledge that you do, the same vocabulary that you do, that they're, they're still at the very beginning, but you got to start there, right? That's just the way that it is. And so I'm going to try to do that now. I'm going to try to remember that for a lot of the people who are hearing my voice, this stuff, this is new, this is novel, this is not something you're familiar with. And I'm, I'm going to attempt to describe the things that I describe in ways that you can really hear and take in. I so hope that I'm going to be able to do that, but I'm also worried that I'm not going to be able to do it. And I want to tell you that right here at, at the front of things. So having said all that, what I would like you to do is if you listen to this and it makes sense to you and it's making you curious, it's making you interested, you want to know more, when we meet together as a class, I really hope that you will tell me that this is helping you. Uh, if it's generating questions, I hope that you'll, of course, bring those questions and, and ask them and I will do my best to answer them. Likewise, if this podcast lecture and the podcast lectures that come after it, if they don't help you, if they confuse you, if they, they make things less clear and more opaque, then let me know that too, because I, I do want to know that so that I can adjust and try again and try to say things in ways that will, will make sense. Okay, so that's my kind of long sort of rambly introduction. Thank you for humoring me and listening to that. We're going to do a bit of transition music, and then when we come back, we're going to get started by doing a description of sort of the very long arc of Lacan's thought and some of the concepts that you will find within that very long arc. Draw your attention to some of the ways that Lacan and Freud are really similar. The first thing that I would like to call your attention to is the fact that both Freud and Lacan were prolific. They produced a massive amount of content. How massive, you might be asking yourself. To give you a, somewhat of an idea, the standard edition of Freud's writings is 24 volumes long. That's 24 fairly sizable books of his writing. And that doesn't include everything that he wrote, right? That's just the standard edition. Tons and tons of stuff that he produced there. Lacan was somebody who would give this thing called a seminar. Uh, a seminar is where he would show up and at least once a week, uh, or sometimes it was once every two weeks, he would talk and teach uh, about psychoanalysis. And he did this from the year 1952 till 1980. And prior to the year 1952, when the seminar started to be recorded and then transcribed and some of them have been published, a lot of them have been published, not all of them have been published at this point, but quite a few have. 
Uh, before that, though, he would do lots and lots of writing. I mean, he started writing things in the 30s. And there was a book called The Acree, which is French for writings, that got published in 1966. It's a massive, massive book. It's huge. It's like a phone book of things that Lacan wrote. So the point I want to make here right off the bat, both Lacan and Freud wrote a lot of stuff, said a lot of stuff, taught a lot of stuff, produced tons and tons and tons of theory. That is something that I think is important to know. The next thing I would like to point out is that both Freud and Lacan, the theory that they produced, the things that they were saying about psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic technique and the uses of psychoanalysis and the limitations of psychoanalysis, so on, so on, that changed over time. Lacan didn't give his first seminar in 1952 and then keep on giving the same seminar, saying the same things all the way to 1980. What would happen is that he would give his seminar, he would teach things, then later on the next year, he would teach additional things, and then the next year he would teach additional things. Freud didn't write the same thing over and over again. He wrote something, and then you know he'd think more and he'd write something else. But what you see, and this is the next point that I want to make about them, is that their work is iterative. They started out thinking one thing, and then they articulated what they thought, and they were both clinicians as they were doing this stuff, right? They, they would both actually be practicing psychoanalysis, which means that they would see patients, they would see analysands, and then they would take what was happening in the clinic, the things that, that occurred there, and that would then be reintegrated into a new articulation of the theory. One of the best things that people can do if they have the time to do this is to really start at the beginning and then work your way through, work your way through Freud, work your way through Lacan. And if you do that, you will actually get the experience of seeing how their work starts and then how it changes and why it changes. The point I want to make by highlighting the iterative nature of their work is that they're both these prolific thinkers, but they're probably similar to you. If you have an idea, if you think it's a great idea, you might talk with people about it. You might try to take that idea and turn it into actions in your life. You might take that idea and try to write a paper or an article or a book about it. And then as you're doing those things, as you're writing your article, as you're talking to people, as you're trying to take your concept that you've realized and put it into practice, you realize that you didn't think of everything and then you start to modify. If you start out to do something really big, not a simple thing, but a big thing, you have an idea in your head of what you're going to create, what you're going to write. But as you go about the act of creating it, as you go about the act of writing it, what happens is it changes and you edit it. And uh, by the time you're done, what you have has gone through several iterations, and it's not the thing that you thought it was going to be at the beginning. Both Freud and Lacan had this happen. And then the last thing, which I've already said, but I, I'm going to come back to it because I think it's vital. Both Freud and Lacan were not people who were just philosophizing. They weren't just like, you know, sitting at a desk reading books and then kind of coming up with ideas and trying to write those ideas. The ideas that they were coming up with, the concepts they were articulating, the techniques that they were trying to describe, they were based off of a clinical practice, the clinical practice of psychoanalysis. And that means that their theory is a clinical theory. It means that their theory is designed to be used for clinical work. I think that if you can keep all that stuff in mind, that'll be important as we move forward. The next thing I want to do is orient you to one of the ways that people who get really into Lacan and study his work a lot tend to understand his work, tend to divide his work up into different phases. Now, this is not the way that everybody who's into Lacan breaks up his work, but this is a pretty common way that exists and that I'm pretty familiar with. 
people will take a look at what they call the early Lacan, and they will say that that period of his work is largely concerned with something called the imaginary, which I'll talk more about in a moment. Then, after that, there's a middle period of his work that is largely concerned with something called the symbolic. Also, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then there is the last or late period of Lacan's work, which is focused on something called the real, which I will try to talk about, but probably have a pretty hard time talking about because it's just really, really difficult to talk about the real for reasons that will become apparent if you keep listening to this. Now, within the phases of Lacan's work, there are these specific things called moments. And a moment might be a paper that Lacan wrote or a talk that he gave or a specific day where he would go pretty deep into a specific idea or concept. What I'm going to do now is to try to give you an incredibly broad overview of the phases of Lacan's work. I'm not going to get too deep into any specific moments. I'm not going to be referencing particular specific texts that he wrote or seminars that he gave. Instead, I'm going to be trying to give you this very, very, very high altitude, expansive way of thinking about his work. Now, if this is interesting to you, the way that I describe it, then what you might want to do is your, your own research, your own work to try to figure out which moments within these phases are of interest to you, and then you can investigate those moments. Or if you're in class with me and you'd like to talk more about this, you know, of course, come talk to me, tell me what your interests are, tell me what questions you have, so on and so forth, and I will do my best to maybe direct you to some specific moments within these various phases that might be of particular interest to you. In this section of the podcast lecture, what I'm going to try to do is to give you a very, very, very brief overview of the first two periods of Lacan's teaching. And I said very three times. I probably should have said it more than that, uh, but I'm going to emphasize this. This is a brief overview. This is dipping your toe in an ocean. My hope is that if you dip your toe in this ocean by listening to this podcast lecture and reading some of the things you need to read for class this week, that you'll be interested and possibly taking a step into that ocean and then another step and another step and maybe start kind of like swimming out into it to see what you might discover there. Let's start with the imaginary period. Work from this early phase in Lacan's teaching focuses on how human beings, particularly infants who don't yet talk, experience the formation of what we would later on call an identity. He's also interested in the formation of the unconscious as well. Uh, there's this idea that when human beings are born, they don't yet have an unconscious. If you, do, I'm going to refer back to some of our earlier classes here. The unconscious is, you could think of it almost as a place, this other place where repressed content goes. Well, the idea of infants repressing anything is kind of ludicrous. Infants don't repress anything. There's, they, they don't have any concepts yet to repress. And so there is no unconscious. Eventually the unconscious gets formed and then different concepts start to be placed there. But that's not happening at birth, is what Lacan and, and many other psychoanalytic thinkers would think. Lacan was interested in when and kind of why the unconscious might actually start to form. 
And he was super interested in the beginning of when we start to form this thing that later on turns into our stable identity, this thing that we are in the world that we kind of represent ourselves to other people with and through. That's something that he is super, super interested in and explores primarily, not only, but primarily in this imaginary period. Or maybe it would be safer to say that in the imaginary period, he's interested in how this whole process of identity formation gets started. That's what I'm going to try to explain to you next here is how this gets started. So there's this really famous paper that Lacan wrote and presented. It's called the mirror phase. And I'm going to tell you how I understand the mirror phase. Now, there's other people who understand it differently than I do. So what I'm giving you here is not the reading. It is a reading. It happens to be mine. But do not take it as like the truth on this. There's lots of different opinions about this particular paper. And if you're interested in it, uh, uh, you know, go and seek those out. Read more about it and learn more about it. So in the mirror phase, Lacan describes this thing that happens where a baby is playing in front of the mirror. Now, you can put a baby in front of a mirror, and for some time, they won't be any more interested in their reflection in the mirror than anything else. They, they might see it, and they might do something with it, but they're not like interested in it. It's not something that captivates them any more than you know uh, a piece of Tupperware that they're playing with from the kitchen. The, the mirror image and the Tupperware are kind of both things the baby can see and the Tupperware might actually even be more interesting to the baby because the baby can like pick it up and touch it and put it in its mouth and do other things that it cannot yet do with its mirror image. However, there's a point where if you continue to put a baby in front of a mirror, it will notice and then become interested in its mirror image. And when I say interested, what I mean, there's a point where the baby, we think, sees its reflection in the mirror, sees its mirror image, it notices that when it moves its body in a certain way, that its reflection, its mirror image, does the same thing. And theoretically, what happens at this moment is that the baby starts to experiment a little bit. The baby moves. It sees the image move. It moves closer to the image, and the image moves closer to it. The baby starts to put something together. It gets excited because it starts to realize something. It starts to realize that is me. The thing that it's seeing in the mirror is me. That's me. Now, this is something which is actually a monumental occurrence if and when it occurs. It might not seem like a big deal to us as adults looking at your reflection in the mirror. Who cares? You do that all the time. But imagine what it would be like for an infant. Try to anyways. Imagine what it would be like to not have language, no words, right? Uh, you ha- you, so whatever infants are thinking, we really don't know what it is. We try to figure it out. But we do know that infants can see things and they can start to recognize the different things that they see. But they're always looking out. They're always looking out at things. And now, and they might see parts of their body. They might see their feet. They might see their hands, etc. But now the infant is seeing its entire body in the whole. They're seeing that that, that body is all put together And they're assigning a concept to it. They're assigning the concept of me, I, that is me. That is who I am. That is what I am. That body, that is me. This means that all of a sudden there's the birth of an incredibly important concept, the concept of me, the concept of identity, the concept of a coherent and whole identity 
is what the child starts to experience at this moment, theoretically. It, Lacan thought that, that was the start, the, the start of an ego. A lot of times this experience is actually validated by parents when infants do this, right? If an infant is playing in front of the mirror and a parent sees that the infant starts interacting with its reflection, they, the parent's like, yes, yes, that's you, that's you. You know, that's if the baby has a name. Say the baby's name is Francois. They're like, yes, that's little Francois, that's you. The baby starts to have this, this idea that there is a me, an I. And I, I keep on saying this, and I don't know if your mind is blown in the same way that my mind is blown. When I first read this, it truly blew my mind because I started to think, oh my gosh, there was a time for every human being who's alive right now, there was a time when they didn't have the concept of them. They didn't have the concept of me. They, they didn't have that. And there's this idea that gets presented in this paper, the mirror phase, that there's this moment, which is based off of the experience of seeing something, seeing an image. That's actually why this is phase is called the imaginary period. It's not that it's about imagination, but it's more about images and the way that we start to experience the world first through images and that, that words come later. But the very first concepts that we develop to think with actually come from our experience of what we see. Another thing that's really interesting about this kind of thing is that Lacan also theorized that this was the first time that the baby was able to kind of see its entire body and then that it kind of got a sense of what their body actually looked like as a whole as opposed to seeing it as these kind of like isolated parts when they were looking out through their eyes. And he thought that that also kind of helped consolidate and strengthen this idea of coherency, of wholeness, of consistency in the body itself. And that that was something that needed to happen for kids to kind of continue to develop psychologically, if you will. Important things to remember about this. Uh, remember the mirror phase. That's the paper where Lacan actually came up with this uh, concept. And remember that when the infant recognizes its reflection, its mirror image, which is a picture, it's an image that the child sees. It's not a word that they read or hear. It's, a, it's something they see. That that is the creation of what we would later on call identity, or at least that's the start of what would be uh, the creation of our identity. And that creation will continue throughout most of our lives, and it will continue to be revised throughout most of our lives. But that's where it starts, in theory. Let's move from the imaginary period of Lacan's teaching to the symbolic period, the middle period of his teaching. In this phase, Lacan focuses on how language as a symbolic system and how communication and miscommunication really affect human subjects. Additionally, in this phase, Lacan tries to show, to teach, to demonstrate how language or a system of signification is used to produce what we would call, what we would recognize as thoughts or other complex ways of understanding and making sense of all the things that we experience. Now, my guess is that out of the three periods of Lacan's teaching, 
this will be the period that most of the people in this class are probably the most interested in. And I say that because I think in this period, what you get is a really good kind of explanation of how language and the use of language, how talking about things, how writing about things that we experience, how that can help us as human beings make sense of all of the different things that happen to us, especially and including the most traumatic and difficult things that happen to us. When I was preparing this lecture and making my notes, I jotted down a couple of instances where I think a good understanding of the symbolic and how the symbolic can be used might be helpful to all sorts of different social workers and other mental health professionals. Some things that came to my mind right away were if you've ever been in a situation where somebody was extremely upset, angry, uh, freaking out, and you wanted to de-escalate them, my guess is that you probably attempted to perform your de-escalation by talking to them, by using words in an attempt to calm them down. If anybody's interested in working through what we call complex trauma, again, my guess is that all of your attempts to work through trauma with somebody, work through your own trauma or help somebody else work through theirs, you were probably talking about it. You were probably attempting to explain the traumatic things that happened to you and the effects that they kind of kicked into motion. That's how you started to make sense of it. Last thing, if you're somebody who's interested in neuroscience, if you're interested in brain stuff, uh, the brain is part of our body, right? It is part of our physical body. It is an organ inside our body. And one of the things about psychoanalysis that I think is really interesting is that it is a study of how the use of speech, of words, can have real effects on the human body. So if you're somebody who's interested in the brain and you think that it's possible to change the way that the brain is wired, change the way that the brain operates, change the way that the brain goes about thinking about things and stuff by talking, this will probably be interesting to you. This period, the symbolic period, will be interesting to you. I tend to think of this period also as really helpful because it explains how people generally go about the process of learning, internalizing, and then using concepts. This is what thinking is, right? It's acquiring a concept, integrating it into a group of concepts that we already have, and therefore expanding the different ways that we can use our networked group of concepts to think about and understand all of the different things that we need to think about and understand. So in the previous part of this section of the podcast, actually, I talked about the imaginary period. And in that period, what was going on is we started to make concepts, but the concepts were based off of things that we saw. We would see something and seeing it would start to create what I might even call a proto-concept of that thing. When we saw our mirror image in a mirror and we recognized that when we moved our real body, that the mirror image corresponded with what we were doing, that created the concept of our body and the concept that our body is something that we are inside and have some kind of level of control over. And we, we had that concept because we saw it, but there was no words yet to the concept. 
It was just this concept based off of something that we saw. Well, another thing that happens, obviously, throughout human existence is uh, that human beings eventually start to make the connection between the things that they're seeing and experiencing by seeing them, the images that they see, and words that other people who are generally our parents or other primary caretakers are saying. So when the child recognizes its reflection in the mirror and the parent says, that's you, the kids start, might start to connect you with the image. Eventually, not only you will be connected with the mirror image, but words like me and I and self will start to be connected to it. Maybe later, body will be connected. That is my body. So now you have my, which is a derivative of me and body, my body. So you're starting to see already how the concept of the image now gets added to and extended by bringing language into the picture. When we start to bring in language, language gives us the ability to name things and to use those names as stand-ins for things even when we can't see them. So for example, right now I can say to you, think of a purple elephant. Now, I'm willing to bet anything that none of you are actually looking at purple elephants right now. But in the past, you've seen purple probably, and you've probably seen an elephant or at least a picture of an elephant. And that means I can use the word purple and elephant to get you to conjure up the image of what I just said, a purple elephant. The word, the signifier, that's another term for word, acts as a stand-in and you can now use that signifier to think of things even though they're not actually literally in front of you. During the imaginary period, I don't know that we really have the ability to do that. The imaginary period is very much about acquiring a concept through the images that are present. And then later on, you know, people start to come up with this really great way of sort of applying, tacking, sticking a name to a thing and having that name then be able to be used for thinking. And, and this is how things work as we start to operate within the symbolic. We start with taking images and applying a concept to them, a term, a signifier. And then eventually we learn that that signifier probably contains not just that one object, but a whole range of objects. And we realize that there has to be a more sophisticated, more elaborate, more detailed naming system. And we, we, as we're doing this, we're learning more words, we're learning more concepts, and we're tacking them more things. Our ability to think and then later on communicate what we think just becomes more and more complex over time. Now, the reason that this is so important and interesting and useful, I think, for some of the things that I mentioned a moment ago, like de-escalating situations, working through complex trauma, is that in, in those sorts of situations, situations where people are emotionally compromised or situations where trauma has been involved, people don't necessarily have the capacity to take what they're experiencing, the very powerful emotions or the very powerful experiences that they have gone through. And they don't have any words that they can use to kind of contain the powerful vastness of what it is that they are experiencing. They're just experiencing it and they don't have any container to put it in. Words, signifiers are containers that we can use to contain all sorts of different things. When we can contain things in words, that means that we can talk about them, think about them, and it gives us a degree of kind of control over them. And when that is gone, it's very, very hard for people. Another thing that happens during this period is not just the acquisition of like individual 
concepts, but kind of groups of concepts. This is when people start to grasp not just single isolated words, but understand the relationships between words. They start to understand language as a system of signification. So we start to understand people create sentences and sentences have like, you know, a subject, usually an object and kind of like a verb connecting them. Like I, that's the the subject, went to, that's the verb, the store, that's the object. Uh, People start to understand that and they start to learn how to communicate in the way that makes sense to other people. This is the internalization, the gradual internalization of language as a grammatical system of rules and kind of norms, different ways of speaking that other people will recognize and be able to understand. The same thing happens for other complex systems like laws, uh, the legal system, uh, cultural normative systems, family systems, all those kinds of big systems start to get internalized and thought in language. The different terms get applied and those terms get connected in a really, really fascinating way. One thing I want to point out about this is that everybody's sort of internal symbolic system that they create and continue to create and recreate and modify over time as they they learn new things and forget things, that's different for every single person. Uh, if I say to you coffee, you're going to have a series of associations to coffee. Some of you might have really positive associations to coffee. You really like it. Some of you might not like coffee at all and you have really negative associations with it. So the same word can activate a whole different group of associations. It can be mapped to a whole bunch of other related concepts that are based off of your experience of coffee and and nobody's going to have exactly the same thing. And this is why in psychotherapy and in psychoanalysis, we get people to talk so much is it's trying to understand sort of the, the linkage, the associations that people have to different things. When I work with people therapeutically, if I hear a word come up and for some reason the word strikes me as important, Maybe the person says it a certain way, or maybe they say it very often. Uh, recently, I was working with an adolescent patient, and they kept on saying that things were not fair. And I asked them to kind of just tell me what not fair means to you. Like, what else comes to mind when you say not fair? What else is not fair? Explain that to me in great detail. Like, just keep going with that. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more about not fair. And it was interesting to see where that teenager, what they associated to it. They had different things that they mapped to that idea, not fair. They were not the same things that I would map to it, but it's how they mapped things to that. And then we could say, tell me more about those things. And anyways, the point I'm trying to make here, I'm going down a rabbit hole, is that everybody has a unique series of association. Everybody has a unique chain of signification. This concept links to that concept, which links to this third concept, and then to this fourth and fifth and so on. And it's by following that chain of signification, it's following those linkages that we can actually come to realize some very interesting things about how people think what they think and potentially why they think what they think. stretch of this podcast lecture one section left then we're done with this one 
what I want to do in this section is talk about how the imaginary and the symbolic can kind of be used together, how they can be combined, if you will. So both of the imaginary and the symbolic period of Lacan's teaching and the kind of concepts that come out of those two periods tend to focus on how we, as either therapists or analysts, might go about helping people to create meaning or how we might go about helping them to make sense of the things that have happened inside of their bodies and outside of their bodies. Helping people to understand and articulate what it is that has happened to them and the effects of what it is that has happened to them. To do that, we tend to work with both words, speech, talking, and images. You know, we will move our bodies when we talk in order to kind of emphasize different things, right? So somebody might, you know, make their eyes wide or throw their hands in the air. This is something that you would see, and in seeing it, you would combine it with the words that they were using to get a much larger, kind of more data-rich kind of experience of what it is that they're saying to you. People will do this all of the time. We will combine imaginary stuff, images, with symbolic stuff, words, phrases, language, in order to create what people in the Lacanian world call a semblant. Uh, Or sometimes, depending on the translations you're reading, you might see it referred to as semblance. Semblants are these very powerful creations, very useful combinations of the imaginary and the symbolic to create something that we use to orient ourselves, that we use to help to determine kind of who we are in this moment and where we're going and if we want to be going in those directions. Now, this concept of assemblant is a pretty big idea, but I'm going to name a few real quick here. The, the first one that came to my mind when I sat down to plan this lecture was being married. The marriage is the semblant. It is a concept that is a combination of both imaginary and symbolic elements. And it's a thing that people take seriously. It has effects on how they go about living their lives, the choices they make, the choices they don't make, so on and so forth, right? It's an important thing. Semblance tend to be that. They're not just anything. They're things that have some kind of significance to us. They act as points of orientation. We kind of have the semblance and we can see how close we are to that semblance or how far away we are, if it's getting closer, if it's getting farther. And that has effects on how we do things, how we behave, how we talk, so on and so forth. I want to give you one more example of a semblance here. Being a social worker or being a priest or being a dentist or being a member of any kind of profession. In both of these examples, being married and being a member of a profession, what you have is a image in your mind, an image of these things, an image of a marriage, an image of whatever the profession is that you want to join. And that image is probably an ideal, right? It is not the way that those things actually are in real life. It is an idealized version of them, a almost perfect version of being married, a perfect version of what it means to be a social worker or whatever profession it is that you want to be a member of. In addition to that imaginary ideal that is whole and complete and consistent all the time, 
and kind of problem-free probably, there is a symbolic component. The symbolic component is all of the official things that you need to do in order to join that profession or get married. If you get married, you have to go through a process where you get a marriage license from the state. Uh, sometimes people can also, in addition to getting a you know civil thing like a, a license from the state, they can also have their marriage uh, recognized, blessed by some kind of religious authority in addition to the civil component. Those are both symbolic things. You're having something, the state or a member of a church or mosque or synagogue or something along those lines recognize that you are now in this thing called a marriage with another person. That's a symbolic thing. If you take your licensing exam, you'll get a license. A license is a symbolic thing. When you take those symbolic things that you get from working within a symbolic framework that is hierarchical, where there's you know a licensing board or a state that can give you a license and you do what you need to do to get that license, that's all symbolic stuff. And that combines with the imaginary slash ideal stuff that exists in your head to create these things that I'm calling semblance. Now, it is my opinion that a lot of psychotherapy and even psychoanalysis could be seen as working through or in some way working with the imaginary and the symbolic and the meaningful semblance that people use to orient themselves to and working with those things in ways that help people start to make sense of the different things that have happened to them that don't make sense. To give you an example of that, say that somebody is, you know, married and they love their spouse. They do. They love them. And at the same time, they find themselves very attracted to another person. This is something that doesn't fit within the semblance. It doesn't fit within their imaginary and symbolic framework. And it's really bothering them. It's freaking them out. It's making them feel crazy and destabilized and stuff. And they might come to a therapist to talk about this. And you might, through having them talk about it and listening and occasionally commenting on what they say, work through the symbolic and help them to understand what their semblant is and the effect that their semblant has on their lives and try to say that even if you get you know married to somebody that's not a magical spell, it doesn't mean that your desire uh, to be attracted to other people goes away completely. It might just become repressed, but then it still kind of operates within your life. There, there's all sorts of different ways that you might discuss it with people. And that's the point. The point is that in therapy, in psychoanalysis, what a lot of what we're doing is discussing things. We're working through words. We're working through speech. We are working through talking and listening to other people to help them kind of make sense of what it is that is happening to them. And if we can succeed in that, if somebody can take something that is happening to them or has happened to them that doesn't make sense, they can't make sense of it, they don't understand it, if they can, by talking about it, start to understand it or perhaps even get a really good understanding of it, that will be something that has therapeutic or curative effects on them. It will help them. It will change things for them in ways that they probably think are useful and important. Now, the reason that I bring this up now is to try to emphasize just how much of that kind of work is done through and with imaginary and symbolic things. 
and how it's done by getting an understanding of what the semblance, the important semblance in people's lives are and getting an understanding of how they relate to those semblance. Once you do that, you can start to discuss things and they can start to discuss things with you. Before you have that, it's going to be really hard to discuss things in what I think of as a really meaningful or therapeutic way. But if you're able to acquire that, you can actually start to discuss things in a way that you can't before you have it. And so a couple points here. One, the beginning of therapy, I would say, is very much about soaking up, gaining an understanding of a person's semblance, their imaginary and symbolic things that have combined in important ways. It is getting a good understanding of their identity, the way that they see themselves. It is getting a good understanding of their internalized symbolic system, their system of signification, their associations, what things link up with other things. And then once you have a decent enough understanding of those things, then after that, you can start to discuss things with them. And in discussing things with your patients or with your analysis, you can start to help them make new connections and make sense of the things that don't make sense to them. And hopefully me saying this to you made sense to you. And that's going to wrap up this podcast lecture for today. Now you'll notice that in the beginning, I said there were three periods in Lacan's teaching, the imaginary period, the symbolic period, and the real period. And I've only talked so far about the imaginary and the symbolic. Yes, very astute of you to notice this. Why have I not talked about the real? <laughs> That'll become apparent in the next podcast lecture where I try to do that, where I try to talk about the real. And you'll probably come to realize that talking about the real is really super difficult, definitely not easy. I'm going to do my best to talk about it, but hopefully you have a start of an understanding or start of an interest in gaining more of an understanding in the imaginary and the symbolic. And if you have questions, comments, criticisms, concerns, any of those sorts of things and other stuff too, please bring them to class. Talk about them when we meet. Till then, please make some glorious mistakes. Don't let the man keep you down. Damn the demand. Save the desire. All that good stuff. I'll see you soon.